We're going to come to a time in our service, we'll do what we always do now, is to look at a passage from God's Word, talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, uh, whatever, would you turn to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start reading at verse 5. So when you found that, if you would and you're able, would you stand together with me for the reading of God's Word? Luke chapter 1, beginning of verse 5, Luke writes this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll dive into this passage today. Spirit of God, would you come powerfully here today um, and illumine the preaching of your word. Open this up to us in ways that we've maybe never seen it before. These are familiar passages, many of them, but God, we're trusting that you'll speak to us fresh and new through them, and I'm praying you'll do just that today. You promise that when you send out your word, it doesn't return to your void. It does accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. So God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us today? As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> as I just said not too long ago, ready or not, we're here. Stuff is up. Uh, um, I know that Costco has been selling Christmas stuff, you know, long before even, I think, Halloween was done. But still, ready or not, the, the season, the holiday, which we all celebrate uh, from around the world, known, at least known around the world, even if we don't all celebrate it, as Christmas, it, it's here. And for a lot of people, that's really exciting. Uh, for, for many people, Christmas is this magical time that, that's just all about Santa Claus and presents, uh, colored lights, and giant inflatable reindeer from Canadian Tire on your front lawn. Um, for some people, Christmas is all about gathering together with family, um, putting aside disagreements and just focusing on family and what's important. I know for some people, Christmas is a time of either intense pressure and stress or intense grief and bitterness. 
And, and I know uh, in a room like this, a variety of different people, I think probably all of those experiences, all of those different ideas of Christmas and more exist. But into or over top of or alongside of all of those different ideas and experiences comes yet another understanding of Christmas that centers entirely around the birth of a baby some 2,000 years ago. Um, angels, heavenly messengers came, or so the story goes, to announce his birth, to say he is coming as well as to give clues about who this baby was and what made his birth in particular such a big deal. But if you even consider this, this other understanding of Christmas at all, when we come to these heavenly announcements from the angels as well as the recipients of those first announcements, it, 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 can feel, it can feel all but impossible today to really meaningfully engage with them. It just feels so far removed from us, far removed culturally, removed by 2,000 years of history. It just feels like, what does that have to do with us today? Totally different time, totally different people. The thing I'd like you to consider, I want to just invite you to consider along with me as we kick off this Advent series today entitled Behold, where we'll be looking at a number of these incredible angelic messages from the Christmas story over the next weeks, is that those people who received those first angelic messages were actually not all that different from you and me. They weren't all that different. They, they too dealt with financial and business pressures in life. They had marriage issues. They had family struggles. They, they, they too were learning what it looks like to do life under government restrictions. Um, and despite how we often try to characterize people in the first century, they were also not either accustomed to or expectant of angelic visits. Okay, this was not just a normal thing that happened all the time. They were just like, oh, hey, no, no. Like, look at virtually any encounter between angels and people in the Bible, and you see, like, shock, terror, or both uh, occurring, right? It's why, like, every time an angel shows up to bring a message, the first part of their message is always like, it's okay, don't, don't be afraid. They have to say, don't be afraid, because everybody is. It's not something normal and expected. The one important difference, of course, yes, being that while those first announcements had everything to do with looking ahead, they, they were announcing a, a child who was coming or was about to come, our consideration of these angelic announcements will be all about looking back on, on a, a baby that came. But regardless, whether, whether we're looking forward or backward, the, 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 the job that we have as, as we consider these angelic messages remains the same. We need to consider the content of that message. What did they say? And what does it reveal to us about just who this baby is? And so that's what we'll be doing over these next number of weeks as we look at these angelic announcements. And as we come to this passage today from Luke, Luke's gospel is, is interesting because Luke gives us arguably the most historical content of any of the gospel writers about this famous birth. We actually get three of the four angelic messages come in Luke's gospel. And yet, interestingly, Luke doesn't begin his account of this great and wondrous birth with the birth of Jesus. Which in case there was any doubt, like that's the birth we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus' birth. That's what Christmas centers around, his birth. Luke doesn't begin his account of Jesus' birth with the birth of Jesus, but with the birth of another key character in the Christmas story, namely John the Baptist. Now why would he do that? 
Why would he begin a historical account about the birth of Jesus talking about the birth of an entirely different baby? Well, we're going to dig more into the answer to that question as we come to this passage from Luke's Gospel. But the very simple, just kind of generally speaking, answer to that question is because Luke does that because it's the angel's announcement about John's coming that signals Jesus' coming is about to take place. That's why he begins that way. John's coming means Jesus' coming is about to happen. Like in the same way that after nine months of of waiting and anticipation, water breaking, uh, intense, closely placed, timed contractions means a baby's about to happen. The point isn't the contractions. It's it's not water breaking. The point is the baby, but it signals it's about to happen. It's, it's It's a sign that this is about to take place. So no, John's birth isn't the main thing. But it is an important thing. It's an essential thing, actually, to the story of Christmas. And in order to help you see why it's such an important thing, and how John's coming helps, as Luke says here, or as the angel said, to to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, I want to look at this passage in just two ways with you this morning. I want to talk about the answer within the answer, and then the spirit and power of Elijah. The answer within the answer, the spirit and power of Elijah. So if you closed your Bible, Bible app, would you open that again with me? Follow along with me in our passage. I want you to see this as we go through it. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. Follow along with me as we begin now this Advent series today, looking at these incredible angelic announcements recorded for us in Luke's gospel, considering all that they meant to these first recipients as well as all that they still mean for us today. Okay, so let's look first of all at the answer within the answer. The answer within the answer. So I I just finished saying, yes, uh, John's birth uh, that's being announced from this angelic message, it's not the main thing about the Christmas story, but it is an important thing. It is an essential thing. And and before we dig into why John's birth is such a big deal, how his birth signaled the imminent coming of Jesus' birth, I want to focus for just a few minutes, and it seems Luke wants us to focus for a few minutes as well, on the context of John's birth, like what it was, the events surrounding his birth coming at all. Because as the title of this point suggests, as it relates to prayer being answered, John's birth is something of an answer to prayer that's embedded within the answer to a different prayer. I'll show you what I mean by that. If you look back with me at verses 5 through 7, look there with me. We're introduced here to John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, and three things Luke tells us about them, generally speaking, are, they are, first of all, both righteous before God, he says, blameless in all the commandments and statutes, which, which doesn't mean that they were perfect, they didn't follow God perfectly, it just means that their heart attitude was set and focused on God in such a way that all they did, they, they sought to honor and please God in everything they did. Secondly, we're told that they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and thirdly, that they were advanced in years, which meant probably isn't going to happen now. So that's, that's what Luke tells us about these two parents. And, and the reason that's all important for us to know is because uh, at this time in history, this, this kind of, this culture in particular, having children 
was seen as a sign of God's blessing, a sign of God's favor and barrenness, inability to have children, was seen as a sign of God's curse, a sign of, of, of discipline or punishment of some kind for wrongdoing. And what Luke is anxious for us to really know here right off the bat is that Elizabeth's barrenness, the, the inability of Elizabeth and Zechariah to have children up until now is in no way a result of their disobedience or God's judgment. But as we'll come to see here in a moment, it's a result of God's timing. Their inability to have children, not a result of God's judgment, but of God's timing, which, having said that, doesn't mean for a second, doesn't want to take anything away from the fact that, yeah, they they still would have, even if God's timing is perfect, it doesn't mean that they still didn't experience deep sadness and grief as a result of this over the years, that they didn't experience very real heartache for Zachariah and Elizabeth as they longed to have a child and couldn't. Or didn't mean that Elizabeth didn't experience uh, disgrace, kind of lightly veiled judgments uh, as the years went on and she didn't have children uh, as a result of God's timing. I'm not saying that that's the main point of what Luke is trying to communicate here, but I think it's important to focus, like just so we don't sanitize these, uh, these events here and, and, and realize that they're talking about real people who dealt with real emotions, grief, sadness, struggles. I think it's important as well because it shows us you can be exactly in the will of God for your life and in his perfect timing and still not have what you want, still experience struggle and sadness. It doesn't mean you're outside of the will of God necessarily. But into this heartache, into this struggle for John's parents comes one of the most unlikely answers to prayer ever and in the most unlikely of circumstances ever. So if you look in verse 5 there again, Luke also tells us, Zachariah is a priest. He's a priest, and as the scene unfolds in verses 8 and 9, we're told that he's chosen by lot to enter the temple to offer incense. Now, I don't want to get caught in the weeds here, kind of digging into like, priestly service and temple service and what that all looked like, but just very generally speaking, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Uh, There were a number of different priests, far too many for everyone to do it, so only some would get chosen, and then you would be chosen by lot to do this once. If you perform this service of offering the incense, you could never do it again, so it really was literally a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And what would happen was, if you were chosen, uh, you would confess the sins of the people, you would offer prayers, and then you would go in behind the curtain of the temple into this inner sanctuary of the temple, the place called the Holy of Holies. This is where God's presence specially dwelt. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Remember the thing that Indiana Jones was trying to keep away from the Nazis? this, This was in this place, God's presence was here, and because God's presence was there, you couldn't just walk in there. Now, it's interesting because today, as those who know Jesus and follow him, coming into God's presence is this wonderful privilege and thing we do easily. At this time, it was not. It was incredible and amazing, but you couldn't just walk into God's presence. Uh, you, you, you couldn't walk into it or, or you'd be struck down. You'd die. In fact, even the priest who was chosen to go in, uh, history tells us they, they still would tie a rope around his ankle just in case something happened he fell over, tripped, he died, he got struck down, whatever. There'd be no way to get him because you couldn't just go in to retrieve him so they could at least pull him out by the rope. So, Zechariah gets this privilege to go in to offer this 
offering of incense on the altar. And the whole idea was is that as they offered prayers for the people, the incense was like a symbol of the prayers going up to God, rising up to heaven on behalf of the people. But as we see in verse 11 and following, in the midst of his priestly duties, Zechariah is visited by an angel. We learn in verse 19 that this is the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel tells him this. Look at verse 13. He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah, there's our, don't be afraid. But he says, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, I don't even know if these are still a thing today, but this has got to be, for Zechariah, like one of the most epic days slash gender reveal parties ever in the course of history because here, not only has Zechariah been chosen for this amazing once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but he's also visited by an angel from heaven telling him, you're going to have a child and it's a boy. I'm not saying that he cut open a cake and there was blue M&Ms inside or something, but he's told, you're going to have a son. Your prayer's being heard, and a son is coming to you. But this is where the story kind of gets a little bit crazy, so I need you to kind of follow closely with me, because we read that, and what we think is, okay, all these years, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they've been praying for this child, they've been waiting and longing for this child, the angel comes and says, congratulations, your prayer's being heard, and now you're going to have a son. And so we can think that the prayer that Zechariah was offering was a prayer for the son, but that's actually not the prayer that's being answered. I'll show you what I mean here, because while we read this in the English translation, we don't really get to see it, but what commentators show us is that in the Greek text, the word that the angel uses for prayer there in verse 13 is not for an ongoing, long-term prayer the kind that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have undoubtedly been praying for a son, the word that he uses is for a single prayer that has just been spoken and offered. It's already happened and, and completed. Which, considering the gravity of this honor that Zechariah is given, was undoubtedly, almost certainly, the prayer that's being answered is Zechariah's intercessory prayer for forgiveness and restoration for the people of Israel. That's the prayer that's being answered, not a prayer for him to have a son. Which means what? Okay, so how how does that work? Well, this is where what I was saying earlier about John's birth being an answer to prayer within an answer to prayer. Because while the Messiah, the, the seed of the woman, the God's promised rescuer, while he is spoken of all through the Old Testament as the one who would come and bring forgiveness, who would bring restoration to the people of Israel, there are also a number of passages speaking of a forerunner. That is, one who would come just before the arrival of the Messiah, who would both signal his coming as well as prepare the hearts of God's people for his arrival. And so what what we're seeing here, actually, is that in responding affirmatively to Zechariah's prayers on behalf of others, his prayer on behalf of the people of Israel, a beautiful byproduct of that prayer is that Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers for a son is now being answered. Because, as we're going to see in a minute, their son John is that forerunner. He is the one who is coming before. And so, do you see what I mean? It's, it's an answer to this prayer, but it brings this with it. So that's why answer within an answer. And we're going to look at a few of these passages in a second here that, that talk about the forerunner and what he would do and why he had to come first. But before I do, 
I don't know, I wonder if it isn't worth just pausing for a second to stop and look at the incredible example of these two people, Zachariah and Elizabeth. It's their faithful service to God in the midst of the fact of this long obedience, long waiting for something that their hearts were longing for and which they thought was never going to happen. Just to really consider their example for just a minute. And, and, and not that they're perfect examples, like they aren't. In fact, literally right after this, Isaiah, Isaiah Zechariah is totally going to face plant as he, he doubts Gabriel's message. He's like, oh, I don't, how, how can that happen? He doubts Gabriel, and as a result, he's rendered unable to speak until the baby is born and this promise is fulfilled. So it's not like they're perfect examples, and, and I don't know, maybe your husband not being able to speak for nine months was an answer within an answer to Elizabeth's prayers. I don't know, but I, I just wonder, I wonder if we look at the lives of these people waiting, faithfully serving, longing, and you wouldn't say that if you think of your own life and you look at what's going on in your own heart today and, and in this world right now, and you wouldn't say that you carry an equally deep desire for something in your own heart, something that you're longing for, that you've been praying for for years, and yet God has still not provided for you. Maybe that desire is also for a child. Maybe it's for a spouse. Maybe it's for uh, a loved one to experience salvation. Maybe you've been praying for just some non-toxic friends in your life that can just love you well and be with you and, and help you to grow up. Maybe you've been praying for years to be healed of some chronic painful condition. Maybe you've struggled for years under the cloud of depression or mental health struggle, whatever it is. How many of us could say, whatever that thing is that you've been holding on to, that in the midst of waiting, in the midst of longing for that thing to be fulfilled, that you have remained steadfast in your obedience to God and remained faithful in your prayers as well as your service for the needs of others. Because that's what we see these guys doing here. They, they have this thing here that they're longing for and yet they continue to be obedient and faithful to God and serve faithfully to the needs of others. I don't know if it's the same for you. I don't know how it is, but I know as I look at my own life, one of the patterns that I see again and again is I have this thing that I'm longing for. I'm asking God for, and the call that God gives me is at least not right now. So my call is to patient endurance, is to wait. And then over time, that unfulfilled longing, as I wait and as I wait, suddenly maybe turns into bitterness. It turns into bitterness as, as, as those days of waiting turn into weeks, turn into years. And suddenly that bitterness becomes this powerful justification, both to ignore the commands of God, or I'm just like, well, you know what? I know it's not right, but I, I need this right now. I deserve this. I've been asking God for this and he hasn't given. Or turns into just this self-focus where all I, all I care about is my own needs, or at least they're the priority over anyone else's. Like, yeah, I see that need. I'm sorry to hear that. Guess what? I got struggles of my own. That's, that's the pattern I see in my own life. I don't follow this example time and time again of these guys. And so I guess what I'm saying is I'm really challenged by their example. I'm really challenged by this. And, and, and if you recognize any of those same responses to unfulfilled longing in your own lives, I think, I think what the Spirit is calling us to is to return. <laughs> to return to a, a faithful obedience to Him. A, a return to service of others. There's something powerful in the time of waiting about serving and focusing on the needs of others 
That actually does encourage your heart and grow your faith in the midst of that. And also a return to trust. A return to trust that God's timing will be perfect, even as we're having to wait in the meantime to see that promise fulfilled. Do we trust that he knows better? Okay, that's, that's the answer within the answer. Again, this coming along with a, a bigger answer to prayer, this promise at last fulfilled for these faithful servants of God. The last thing I want to look at together with you is the spirit and power of Elijah. This language that, that we see here in the angel's announcement, the spirit and power of Elijah. As you read on, in this description, the angel is describing this son that will be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age. And as you read the description, you begin to get an idea of why his birth is such a big deal, as well as what his role will be in preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. As you look at what Gabriel goes on to say, uh, look at verse 14 and following here. He says, you will have great joy and gladness, yeah, uh, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him. This is go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. There's that language. To turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, and there's a lot of stuff there. It's a lot going on, probably more than we could cover in a single message, certainly not in a point from a message. But uh, hopefully you can just gather, even from reading that description in general, that John's going to have a very unique ministry. And it'll be a ministry that is empowered throughout. Actually, it'll be empowered in utero, before he's even born, by the filling of the Holy Spirit. But if you look there at verse 16 and 17 in particular, you see that the ministry of John is going to actually have two key aspects to it. Two key aspects, namely that he will be one who helps to turn the hearts of God's people back towards him, and as a result of that, to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. To turn the hearts of the people back to God, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Now remember, Zechariah is a priest, right? He is intimately familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And I mention that because as Gabriel's describing John's ministry in these very specific ways, I think it would have undoubtedly triggered memories for him of very specific scriptures from the Old Testament speaking of this forerunner that was coming. And name, we're just going to look at two of them very quickly, but scriptures from Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4 and also Isaiah chapter 40. So I'm going to read these for us. I think we'll have them up on the screen here too. Listen first of all to what the prophet Isaiah prophesies about this forerunner. He says this, comforts, comfort my people. You probably hear in Handel's Messiah in your head if you know that well. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low and uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
So as you can see in this prophecy, you've got all this language of, of restoration, of pardon from God, alongside this ministry of a voice, a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. And, and in one of the most, like, got to be like direct one-to-one parallels possible, when you read about John's ministry out in the wilderness, crying out, preaching, and baptizing out in the wilderness, John chapter 1, a group of priests come out to him and they're like, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not the Christ. And they say, okay, well, we need to bring a report back to the religious rulers in Jerusalem. We need to tell them, who are you? And he says, I am, quote, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he's like, that, that's me. <laughs> that's who I am. I am the forerunner. So that's, that's the first one. Now listen, uh, Malachi chapter 3. This is the next one. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This is the same forerunner. There, the prophet Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now jump over to chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Uh, before it comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And do you see that? There's like actually like one-to-one equivalency here of this language used here in, in describing this forerunner who's going to come and then Gabriel's description of this son that Zachariah and Elizabeth are going to have. And in an equally parallel uh, account uh, from Matthew chapter 11, they're speaking to the crowds about John, Jesus himself. So not just John testifying about himself, Jesus testifying about John. Says this, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? It's talking about John's ministry out in the wilderness. Did you go to see a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So pretty clear, like, this is, this is who he is. This is who we're talking about here. And actually, if you note, in both of those prophecies, the language of how this, this messenger will come before the Lord comes to his temple. He's going to be the one that comes before that happens, turning the hearts of God's people back to him and preparing them for his coming. And this kind of confused Jesus' disciples a little bit when they were trying to think about how this works because they were thinking, well, if you're the Messiah, then doesn't Elijah have to come first? That's what the scribes say, that's what the, the Malachi says, that Elijah has to come first. So they're, they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They asked Jesus this, how can you be the Messiah if Elijah has to come first? And Jesus says this, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. But did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then, Matthew says, the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Which when you take it all together, I think you see this is exactly why the affirmative answer to Zechariah's prayer for forgiveness and restoration for the people of Israel is absolutely, is absolutely it's, it's the reason we can say that John's coming is just included within that prayer. 
He's answering the prayer for restoration because Jesus is coming to bring it. But John is this forerunner who is announcing his coming is about to take place. And as you think about those prophecies, you think about the the way they relate directly to what Gabriel says about John in our passage, maybe you wonder about all this language about Elijah. Why does he keep talking about Elijah all the time? Even uh, Gabriel's announcement there says he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. What's that about? Well, I think the answer to that question, the explanation for that connection to John and his forerunner ministry is found when you go back to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. And there you see directly the ministry of this prophet named Elijah. Elijah was one of the best known and revered prophets who offered, he operated powerfully within the spirit of God. One of the key aspects of his ministry was actually calling the people of Israel back to faithfulness to God. Calling them out of their idolatrous kind of hybrid worship where they were trying to worship God and Baal at the same time. One of the most uh, really well-known instances of that comes from 1 Kings 18 where there's this epic battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. There, Elijah calls the people of Israel to himself and he pleads with them. He says to them, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Make up your minds, is, is what he's saying. You, you, can't, you can't do both. And then, remember, he sets up this, con- his, this contest between the two different gods. Uh, on one side, we've got an altar for the gathered prophets of Baal. On this side, an altar for Yahweh. And the God who answers with fire from heaven to consume the, the offering, that's the true God. The prophets of Baal, they try all day unsuccessfully, but just before the God of Israel proves once again that he is truly the one true God, Elijah prays this. He says, answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. When you look at the ministry of John, uh, early chapters of all the Gospels, you see that he had very much the same ministry to the people of Israel, calling them back to faithfulness to God. The only key difference being that John understood he had a very specific role. He wasn't just calling the people back. He was preparing the way for Jesus' coming. He, he, he knew that he was the forerunner for the Messiah's coming. That was the only difference uh, in, in his own ministry there. Preparing the way for Israel's one hope for reconciliation and for restoration, which is why no matter how famous or, or infamous John became, he was always pointing away from himself and pointing to Jesus. I must decrease, he must increase. Uh, He'd say, I baptize you with with water, but one is coming after who is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And in light of that heart-turning, Jesus-preparing ministry of both Elijah and John, the question that I ask myself when I I look at their ministry and and the way that they came before to prepare And the question that I'm asking you to consider yourselves this morning is this. If, hypothetically, Elijah comes into our church today, comes, John shows up at our service today and then just follows me around for a couple days, maybe follows me around for a week and just watches the way I live my life day in and day out. Maybe he comes here to the church and watches the way that we live and operate both on a Sunday morning as well as throughout the week. What would they see? Would, would they preach 
this exact same message of heart-turning, Jesus-preparing message to me, to us? Would they, would they find someone when, when they follow me around who's, who's got a, a heart and a life that, that has, is, is fully turned towards Jesus the best I know how, that's built solely on the foundation of him and trying to build with stuff that matters? Or would they see a heart in me very much like the people of Israel in Elijah's day, seeking to straddle the fence, seeking to live out this kind of hybrid faith where, yeah, I worship Jesus, I love Jesus, but I also got this stuff too. I need these things. I need this stuff to come with me too. I need this to support me. I need this to be fulfilled and last. But they'd be calling me to that exact same limping between two opinions and to faithfulness again to God. Again, this is not about doing this perfectly. I know you don't do that, neither do I. Nobody does. But as the old hymn says, our hearts remain prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But in response to this heart-turning, Jesus-preparing call ourselves, as we think about that call on our own lives, as we seek to fix our hearts on him, as we seek to build on the solid foundation of Jesus more and more by submitting our, our will to his authority, My prayer for each one of us today is that the final words of that hymn would also speak the true desires of our heart, that we could say, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Because really, ultimately, what what, what this call is doing is calling us to have the same ministry of Elijah and John in our own hearts. So that just like we sang in that opening carol, that each one of us would see a preparing, making room in our hearts for Jesus ourselves. Let every heart prepare him room. That's what we're being called to through, I think, this ministry as we consider it today ourselves. If you've ever been to the symphony before, a play, um, even if you've just gone to see a, a movie at a theater, what you'll know is that one of the key devices used to prepare the audience for the show's imminent beginning, uh, to, to kind of shift the focus of everyone there off of themselves and the people around them up onto the stage or up onto the screen is what happens. They dim the house lights, right? That's the, the kind of universal symbol that like, okay, the show's starting. I'm put my phone away. I'm going to look up here now. Even if you've been waiting outside for hours for the show, uh, this is a show you've been waiting all your life to see, you're sitting there right in the theater. It's not until the lights dim that you know that the show is truly about to begin. Well, as we circle back now to where we began, we remember that as important, as essential as John is to the Christmas story, and hopefully you can see now why that is, John's birth is not the main thing. Jesus' birth is. Or to say it another way, Jesus, he's the main attraction that we've all been waiting all our lives to see. John's coming was simply the dimming of the lights, drawing our attention towards the stage. As it relates to Jesus' birth, I hope you can see now, this is why Luke starts out with John's birth. You can see clearly why John, his coming matters so much that, that, that he would begin with this forerunner, because To begin with John's birth is to begin the historical account of Jesus' birth. So for Zechariah, for those who first received this angelic announcement, the birth of John meant the Messiah, he is coming. 
It's, gonna, it's really happening. The contractions are beginning. This is really going to happen now for those of us now today on this side of John's birth. The only difference is, is that it, it means now that Jesus has come. He's come. And we're going to look a lot more deeply into exactly what that means, why he came, what, what he came to do, examine further who this baby was as we look at further angelic messages brought to equally unsuspecting recipients over the coming weeks. But hopefully as we focus today on this heavenly announcement, hopefully what you're seeing and sensing already is the lights dimming and that the show is about to begin. I'm excited to look at that with you. Amen.